This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I thought of my two talks as being complementary, and if I were to summarize them, it would basically be to say that this is a biblical theology of the image of God. So uh, the first talk I want to focus on is what I would call the natural image of God, that it is the image of God as related, as described in Genesis, of how God creates human beings. And then in the next talk, it will be more about the supernatural image of God. We are not only created in the image of God, but as Paul tells us, we are being transformed into the image of God. We, in Genesis, hear about our origin in terms of the image of God. And in Romans and 1 Corinthians, we hear about our destiny in terms of the image of God. It describes both realities, where we begin and where we're going. And this, uh, I think, you know, kind of gives us a, a bit of an overview, a context. Um, to, to begin at the outset, as, as I was uh, sitting back there listening to the questions for Dr. Grabowski's sessions, I realized that it might be helpful uh, just to begin with a word about what we believe about the Bible and about Scripture. Um, and to do that, there's no better place to go than Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on the Word of God from Vatican II. And the thing I want to highlight at the outset is just this. I'll, I'll, I want to read a couple of sentences. This is from Dei Verbum, paragraph 2, the very first sentence. In his goodness and wisdom, God chose, chose to reveal himself and to make known to us the hidden purpose of his will, by which through Christ, the word made flesh, man might, in the Holy Spirit, have access to the Father and come to share in the divine nature. Then in paragraph six, through divine revelation, God chose to show forth and communicate himself and the eternal decisions of his will. He chose to share with human beings those divine treasures which totally transcend the understanding of the human mind. This is an important point to understand how the Bible we read relates to God's decision to reveal himself to us. Revelation is bigger than the Bible. Revelation is God's total decision, his total plan to reveal himself to us and to draw ourselves into him, into the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dave Verbum goes on to explain how God makes this decision, how God, in what way God chooses to do this. And it, the very next thing it talks about is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, giving his disciples his gospel. The apostles are charged with then going out to preach, to hand on the word of God. And then at the end of their lives, they have followers who will receive it from them directly, what we call apostolic succession. This is what we refer to as the tradition. I mention this because it's significant that this document on the word of God 
emphasizes that tradition is the context in which we receive the scripture. Apostolic succession guarantees the purity, the truth of the word of God as it's received in the church. And so, as Pope Benedict XVI time and again reminded us, that we must read this scripture, we must read these words within the life of the church, liturgically, in prayer, with a mind to the entire deposit of faith, keeping in mind the living tradition and the teaching office of the church. We don't read the Bible as individuals, like I have my own Bible and I write my notes in it and I figure out what it means. We must have an openness to the tradition, to what others have said before us, as well as how the church points us in the right direction in the way that she uses the Bible, the scripture, in our liturgy and in our life of prayer together. This is the, the grounding principles of what the scriptures are to us. So then Dave Verbum finally gets down to describing what uh, inspiration is. And it describes it in the terms of a charism of the Holy Spirit, that men were given a charism by which they consigned to writing the truth that God wanted for the sake of our salvation. So when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, what we're talking about in the first instance is the fact that the Holy Spirit gave a charism, inspired uh, a, a person to write something down. It is a charism in the intellect. And then in the second place, it refers to objectively the fact that we have the ongoing product of that. The words of the scripture, they too are considered to be inspired, meaning that they continue to be a conduit. They, they continue to be conducive to God revealing himself to us. They continue to be conducive to God communicating his truth to us. So when we read the Bible in the Catholic conception of things, what we're saying is that as we read the Bible, especially in the Mass, the Holy Spirit is again freshly revealing God to us. That the Holy Spirit continues to work in and through these words, which are guaranteed once again by the church, by the, the tradition, the magisterium. The bishops, the apostolic successors are those who guarantee for us the veracity, the, the truthfulness, the purity and authenticity of the scripture. So that framework then uh, will maybe provide a helpful uh, framework uh, for what I'm going to say regarding the image of God, that we begin with the tradition and the way in which the church has always read Genesis 1. And, well, Genesis 2 through 9, as we'll, we'll also see. Okay, so we begin there. But then we also, in order to get at what these words mean in the, the context of the historical context in which they were written down, we also investigate the historical and sociological background of these words. Because, again, we believe that the human person was not 
taken over and possessed by the Holy Spirit, but had full possession of his mental faculties as he wrote. He was a true author. And so this author lived in a particular time and place with a particular view on the world. So we have to take into account that as well. So we begin with the tradition, but we also move into historical background. That's the kind of trajectory that I'm proposing here. And the, the final word I'll say as an opening here is that uh, the, it's interesting that in all of these human works that we uh, would say compose or comprise the scripture, many of them are narrative stories. And that is what Genesis is at its root. It is a story. It is the story of the beginning, the beginning of everything, the beginning of the cosmos. But it's also the story of the beginning of Israel and the beginning of salvation. Creation and salvation in the Bible are two halves of the same coin. God creates in order to save, always with a mind to salvation. God creates always with a mind to calling people into relationship with himself. And God's salvation, conversely, is always described as recreation, renewal, recreating and redoing what he did at the beginning. So with this pattern in mind, we can go to the sixth day of creation as we read it in the book of Genesis. Then God said, let the earth bring forth every kind of living creature, tame animals, crawling things, and every kind of wild animal. And so it happened. God made every kind of wild animal, every kind of tame animal, and every kind of thing that crawls on the ground. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame animals, and all the wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that crawl on the earth. And thus it happened, and God looked at everything he had made and found it very good. Evening came and morning followed the sixth day. For good reason, these verses are more commented upon in the tradition than perhaps any other in the entire book of Genesis. As we heard uh, in the first talk, Augustine does speak quite a bit in his uh, De Trinitate about the way in which this image and likeness of God is found in the soul. The tradition most often focuses on the spiritual reality of the image of God, the way that the soul, in fact, images God, and specifically the intellect. I'm not going to go over that ground since it's been already very expertly delineated for us in the first talk. But I also want to make reference to another of the uh, ancient fathers, the, 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 the fathers um, that are in just the post-apostolic age, and that's Irenaeus of Lyon. Irenaeus is meditating upon the image of God, and there's a particular problem that he's addressing, which is how is it that there might be a distinction between how believers image God 
and how regular non-believers, regular human beings, all human beings might image God. And here he says that there is a difference between the image and the likeness. He wants to say that there is a image of God in the intellect and in the soul with Augustine. However, he also focuses on the supernatural graces that redeem the soul and saying that this makes the soul godlike. That is what is meant by the likeness, that it is some way a closer correspondence to God, that there is a closer uh, relationship made possible, that the redeemed would be able to image God more clearly than the non-redeemed. This is Irenaeus's point. And just hang on to that as we go through this uh, first talk, uh, as we go through the Genesis narrative. What I want to do, though, having established that, the tradition is quite uh, focused on this spiritual quality of the image of God, is then go into the biblical narrative itself by doing a little bit of a deep dive in some of the nitty-gritty details that I, as a nerdy biblical scholar, find so very interesting. And the first one of these is the Hebrew term for the word image, Salem. Uh, that's a T-S sound, that's a tzaddik. Okay, so Salem is the word for image, all right? All of the time in the Bible, this word always refers to something that is physical. It is a physical image, okay? In Genesis 5.3, uh, Adam is said to father Seth after his image. And there it refers to the fact that there's a correspondence. The one who is the image, that's Seth, takes after or looks like the one after whom he is an image, that is Adam. They, there's a physical correspondence in the way that they look. But that is not the only way that this word is used. It's not even really the primary sense of the word. Salem does connote a physicality, but it usually comes to mean something of a symbolic representation or a symbolic depiction. And in order to understand, I mean, symbolic uh, representation, I would just, uh, you know, I don't know, again, to go back to the newspaper thing, I, I, I made a note not to say that just because of, but if you picked up a newspaper on your phone and scrolled, you could find in Politico some uh, political cartoons today, right? And you could see that these political cartoons would often feature a donkey and his elephant friend. Uh, they're not funny, but uh, there you go. Um, then there is a guy on there with a pronounced pursed lips with the red hair. And then there's another guy with very large ears, okay? Uh, one being uh, 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 former President Barack Obama, the other one, Trump, okay? So the, the point that I wanna make here is that these depictions don't look anything like these men. They don't, they, they don't look anything like them, okay? They're caricatures. The artists focus in on the most striking physical element of someone's countenance, and then they bring it out. They depict them in order to mock them uh, for humorous satirical effect. And then there are these symbols also in play, that these represent an entire ethos, an entire political party. They're there in the background trying to communicate something. Now, my point in bringing up this example is just that in none of these cases is the object 
to make a physical, accurate depiction of someone. Okay, it is rather to communicate a satirical, humorous truth or perceived truth, I should probably say. Okay. Now, this is an analogy that perhaps limps, but I would say that in an analogous fashion, Genesis 1, 26 to 27 is making a similar kind of symbolic representation claim, okay? That human beings symbolically represent God in some way, that they do so physically. The way in which, according to Genesis 1 and the Genesis narrative that follows, the way in which human beings image God is visible. It can be seen. It can be perceived. In order to get a little bit farther into this, what I want to do is also consider some other places in the ancient Near East, that is the time and place of the Bible, that images were used. And typically they were used uh, in reference to kings. So kings would set up their image at their borders on a pillar in order to indicate their boundaries. They would also put their image on storage jars that contained grain, wine, and oil in order to signify that these belonged to the king. But this was more than an elaborate property of kind of label. This belongs to me, this is mine. No, it also mediates the presence. The belief was that it kind of mediated the presence of the king in that place the power and the authority of the king were present. And that's why if you ever effaced an image of the king, it was a capital offense. It was a damaging uh, influence or impact on the king himself. Okay, so this is a different kind of conception of what the image is. There's a metaphysical belief behind it, okay? Similarly, um, there are... Uh, just, just to, to draw this out, the, these images of the king were not like portraits. They were what I'm calling symbolic representations. They often used images uh, and symbols like scarab beetles, uh, the wings of mythical beasts, and um, yeah, things like the sun disk. Okay, so why do you do that? It's not only to make the mediation of the, the authority and power of the king present and felt, but it's at the same time to communicate something about the king. The fact that the king is a powerful man, that he is a guarantor of justice, that he can provide for needs. All of these things in the king's image were meant to communicate these types of truths about the king. Finally, I want to just reference a couple of texts from some of the other ancient Near Eastern societies that had accounts of creation. In Egypt and in uh, a place called Babylon, they had creation accounts, okay? And they referred to the creation of a king as being separate from the creation of the rest of humanity. The king is created first as the image of God, and he is created separately from the rest of the poloi, who are the slaves of the gods. The king is created separately because he has a special higher purpose. He is created in order to ensure justice and ensure the order of his society. He's created to ensure justice and order in society. 
Now, if we draw all of those things together, there are some initial conclusions that we can make about how it, what it means when Genesis is saying that we are created in the image and likeness of God. First, the divine image does have this physical aspect. That's not to say that it, it implies that the Israelites believed that God was a physical being, but rather that we have a visible way of representing God on earth. But second, it also marks out the human person as belonging to God, as somehow being the property of God or being under the authority and power of God, being in relationship with God. Finally, though, it says that we mediate God's presence in the world and we communicate something about God to the world. We communicate this truth about God as his guarantors of mercy and justice. Let me explain this last point. It is important to consider the fact that the, uh, the statement that we are created in the image and likeness of God is immediately followed by a series of commands. First of all, that the human person who is created in the image and likeness of God is meant to be fertile and multiply and fill the earth. This is an important point because it means that in some way, shape, and form, human beings participate in the completion of creation. God could have filled the earth with the creatures that he wanted there, but according to the Bible, this is a significant point, God offered to creatures and to human beings alike the ability to complete the full number of creatures in the world. But there's also a point that distinguishes human beings in this regard from creatures, from the animals, and that is this. We are also supposed to subdue the earth. That verb subdue is also one that has a kind of royal connotation. It is a technical word that refers to subjugating territory. And so what this is talking about, that for human beings to fill the earth, it is a way of saying that they will fill the earth with societies, with political entities called nations that eventually comes to pass at the end of the primordial history in Genesis 10. So when we fill the earth and subdue it, we comply with this divine command, we also emulate this royal kind of image that we have been created with. Finally, then, this royal image is again reinforced by the, the last command to have dominion over the fish and all of the creatures, etc. That most clearly emphasizes the royal dimension of the human being as an image of God. So as we saw earlier, human beings were sometimes described as an image of God because they were understood to maintain divinely bestowed order and justice on the created world. In effect, the, the narrative of Genesis is democratizing this belief, this idea. All human beings, irregardless of the fact that they are with God or not, they all have this ability to emulate divine justice and order in the world through their action. The final thing that I want to uh, point out here is that this means that human beings are living images 
of God. They're dynamic, not static. They're not like a piece of stone that you stick in the ground. It is precisely in their behavior, in the world, in the cosmos, that serves as this image of God. The image of God has a context, has a place. It's a little bit like if you've ever been to a museum, uh, what you call a, um, a diorama, right? So it's one thing if you have like a woolly mammoth and it's just the woolly mammoth kind of reconstructed uh, on its own. But it's another thing, you put it in a diorama in its context, you learn that this was a cold weather animal, you put other things around it, sometimes cavemen, right? Or no, did they? They didn't uh, overlap, did they? I should have thought of this example. I can't remember. Anyway, so strike that. Um, that'll, that'll be in post, right? Okay. Okay, so, um, but anyway, there's a context to this image. That's my point. Okay, so that it's a living image that we, that we have. This is the, the point of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that living in relationship with God in the garden, taking care of it, doing what God asks, living in obedience, in communion with God and one another, that's the image of God. In some sense, it is in the soul, but it's also in the body and in the society, in the order of the entire cosmos. This, in, this is a way of making God's solicitude and merciful justice for creation perceptible to others, making it visible through behavior. That's the biblical kind of idea here. Now, if you're not a Bible buff, um, you probably uh, have still heard of the fact that there is a fall um, and that this happens in Genesis 3. Um, this is where we see the uh, fact that God's initial plan for creation didn't last all that long. Uh, it didn't last a single generation. Okay, so the, Im almost immediately, this, there's this dissolution. And what I want to do is consider a few details about how this original sin comes to pass, okay? And what it consists in. Uh, again, there's a lot that we could say about this in terms of the tradition, but what I wanna emphasize is that in the Hebrew of Genesis 3, it's very much a matter of who or to whom uh, Adam and Eve are listening, okay? They're supposed to, in the ideal order, original justice and original holiness, their intellect is supposed to be ordered to God, their will to their intellect, their passions to their will, that Adam and Eve help one another keep mind and heart on God. That's the ideal. And that through that, they govern and reign as God's representatives over the created world. But in the course of the events of the temptation of the serpent, Eve listens to the voice of the serpent rather than God. It is a matter of disobedience. God gives the command that you may eat from any of the trees of the garden, except the tree in the middle of the garden that is the knowledge of good and evil. And the warning here that God gives is that on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the serpent comes along and he asks, really? And Eve says, yeah, really? And then he says, the serpent says, you will certainly not die. God knows full well on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like gods, knowing good and evil. So Eve has 
these two contrasting sets of words before her. What does she do? She has recourse to her own observation. She looks at the fruit of the tree, sees that it's desirable, that it's good for food, and good for gaining wisdom. So she has recourse to herself to adjudicate between the veracity between God's words and the serpent's words. She listens to the serpent and to herself, not to God. And in so doing, she upends this hierarchy, this created order. That's the disorder of the soul being uh, introduced into the created world. This is the fundamental part of the fall of this original sin. And what's more is Eve, who is tasked with being uh, Adam's helper, his helpmate, his helper like his opposite, in order to uh, comply with and listen with God, she actually leads him astray as well. Not to absent him from his responsibility. In some respects, she actually shows herself to be a better thinker because um, I find this to be funny in the text. It's like, so she has this whole process of consideration and deliberation. And then, uh, and then she gave it to Adam who was with her and he ate it. And that, like, that's, <laughs> that's it. That's what it says. So it's just like, yeah, okay. So, so he's listening to his wife's voice and not to God's voice. So again, it's listening to the creature, not to the creator. This is what comprises the disorder amongst the way that the soul images God. But it has further effects. As we see in the latter half of Genesis 3, there is an impact on the created order, on the world itself. There are a series of punishments or curses that are meted out. Okay, The serpent is cursed. And then he has to crawl on his belly and eat dirt. Uh, might be a fitting punishment, I guess. So that's the first one. Then Eve has her childbearing pains greatly increased. And her urge becomes for her husband. There's a disorder introduced into the relationship. Finally, with Adam, there is an increase in toil. His work becomes laborious, toilsome, it's only through the sweat of his brow that he gets his uh, food from the earth, and it's not as good as it was. Okay, so my point here is that in all of these things, there is actually a physical impact on the world. The order of the world, in some way, shape, or form, has been changed. And finally, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They can no longer eat from the tree of life. Banishment from the garden is equated with death because they can no longer live with God there. This is the point that Genesis is trying to make. Okay, that is then the, the full fallout of this original sin. It disorders the soul and it disorders the world. Thus, human beings have a much more difficult time if it's not even, if it's even possible to image God in this situation. Even if they wanted through their obedience to emulate God's solicitous mercy and justice in the world, it would be very difficult to do so. And that lesson is then borne out time and again in Genesis 4 all the way to the flood in Genesis 6. It goes from bad to worse it escalates rather quickly. The, uh, I guess you would call it the divine law is broken in the garden. 
And then the natural law begins to be broken outside of the garden. They have, Adam and Eve that is, they have a pair of sons, Cain and Abel. We all know that Cain rises up and kills Abel. Why? Because he is jealous because God liked his offering better. He kills his own brother for that reason. The disobedience that Adam and Eve showed has now transformed and intensified into violence and murder and death. This is the intensification of sin. By the end of chapter 4, one of uh, Cain's descendants is called Lamech. And Lamech says, I will kill anyone who bruises me or anyone who offends me. If Cain is avenged seven times, Abel or uh, Lamech will be avenged 77 times. My point here is he's bragging about killing other people for minor offenses against him. Violence has become more of the norm than the exception. If we then move all the way to Genesis 6-6, uh, there we see the full wretched plight of humanity, okay? The spread of sin is almost universal, okay? There we see that, uh, I believe the, the exact translation is, the Lord regretted making human beings on earth and his heart was grieved. That human beings have become so evil that they actually grieve the Lord. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of human beings was on earth and how every desire that their heart conceived was always nothing but evil. Let me read that again. Every desire that their heart conceived was always nothing but evil. That is now the state of humanity a few generations after the original sin. It has completely taken over humanity. There is nothing else to be done. And my point here is that it would be nigh impossible to recognize the solicitous mercy and justice of God amongst humanity in this picture. The image of God is all but effaced from humanity. That is the sad state of things because of original sin. Now, fortunately, God is every bit as merciful as he is just. Okay, so if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, you see that God, in banishing Adam and Eve, he also has solicitous mercy to show them. He makes them clothes out of animal skins, leather. So he sends them away from the garden, but he also gives them protective clothing. That's important. It shows that he still cares about them, that he still is in a relationship with them. With Cain, he banishes him even farther eastward out of the land of uh, Adam and Eve. But nonetheless, he still puts a mark on him to protect him against those who would try to kill him. In a similar way, then, we see that Noah arises as an embodiment and as an agent of God's justice and mercy. We read about Noah that he is unique in being blameless and righteous. Mysteriously, even though all of humanity is completely evil in every single thought that they have, 
Here we see that Noah is just and upright. And we learn that this is because he found favor with God. God showed Noah his gratuitous grace. It's only because God willed it, because God showed him his grace, that he is able to be just and upright and therefore to serve again as this living image of God. And so God enacts his plan, what we might call the nuclear option. Okay, He decides to allow the world to be submerged. Okay, This is very much a matter of uncreation. What I mean by that is, if you think back to Genesis 1, how does God create the cosmos? The first thing he does is he creates the sky, the rakia, the firmament. It's like an upside-down bowl. That's what the sky is. And it separates the waters above from the waters below. Then the waters below are all drawn into one big ocean. They're still underneath the land, but it allows the land to be seen and animals to live on the land. So with the flood, we often think of it, at least I always did, as a matter of just a bunch of rain. Uh, but what God is actually doing is opening up the floodgates in the rakia, in the firmament, so that all these waters up here can come back down. And then he's opening the springs from beneath so that all these waters can come back up to completely submerge the earth and to destroy everything, absolutely everything. Everything that is except for Noah and the creatures that he puts on his ark. Okay, Then Noah, because he is blameless and righteous, becomes the principle of recreation. God uncreates, but then through his mercy, he recreates through Noah. Noah, because of his justice and uprightness in obeying God, can become this fitting principle of recreation. Thus, he is a reestablished image of God. But we also know in the aftermath of the flood, uh, we, we do have a, a verbatim repetition of Genesis 1.28 that to Noah and his sons, when God blesses them, he says, be fertile and multiply and fill the land again. They do. But we also know that from Genesis 8.21, they are still evil from their youth. God says, they are, I know that human beings are evil from their youth. Therefore, I will no longer again destroy and use the nuclear option, so to speak, uh, because I know that it's, it's going to always happen that way. So there's this dour note, and we know also that sin re-enters the picture rather quickly. Noah gets drunk, and then his son sees him naked, and then goes and gossips about him and mocks him to his other brothers. That sows seeds of discord. And then there's a great explosion of sin again that culminates in the Tower of Babel. Yet, nonetheless, there is still this, because of God's gratuitous mercy accompanying the evil, the possibility that the image of God can continue in the world. Genesis is very much with this narrative showing this as a drama, as a competition. Who's going to win out? We don't know. Why? Because human beings tend to be very disorderly and disobedient. Yet, this clearly shows us that God continues to reach out even in the midst of sin in order to reestablish and restore his image. This is something that will become uh, fulfilled in a particular, a new way in Christ as Noah 
serves as a type of Christ that Christ will fulfill, which is more of the subject of the second talk. So as things stand at the, um, at the outset of Genesis 9, there is something that I want to just focus in on here that's still lacking, even amidst the reestablishment of the divine image, and that is the inner transformation. Okay, we must notice that Noah was the exception and not the rule. Human nature still is fallen, and there still is a disorder amongst human beings who are unable to consistently keep their mind and heart trained on God. So this is why sin almost immediately re-enters. And this is why we stand in need of transformation into the image of God, even after having been created in the image of God. So in my next talk, I will consider how, according to St. Paul, particularly the letter to the Romans, Christ both restores the natural created image of God within all human beings, and for those who believe, transforms that natural image of God into a supernatural image of God that reflects God's glory in a way that can never be diminished or destroyed. Thank you. Um, so I have a, it's a sort of a long question. Um, okay. So from my understanding with what I've talked with modern Jewish scholars, they have a very interesting view of the creation. And I know this isn't necessarily continuous because like rabbinic Judaism introduced some new concepts. So you're talking about pre-rabbinic Judaism. It's like, they do, it's not exactly what Jew, Jews have never really been like, you know, we believe this set of things set in stone. Everybody agrees with it. So take this with a grain of salt. But, um, my understanding is that some, a lot of Jews don't necessarily even believe in original sin. And I'm not, so I'm kind of curious from your studies, like what is their perception when they study the old Testament on the image of God? Like, do you know too much about that? And further, do you know like what, I guess a better question is, do you know the people for the right when Jesus came, what their perception of the image of God was? when like, you know, around Jesus' time for them, like when they, when they read this, this area of Genesis, okay. what, what that meant to them, basically. So the question is, uh, like second temple Judaism, what they believed about the image of God. Yeah, and well, then, and then the second, the, which was the first one that you said was. Yeah. If, if you feel like answering it, like how, would, how do you say that perception is now? Like, the, of the image of God in yeah, amongst modern, modern Jews. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, one thing I would say about the, in both of these cases is that probably the image of God was not as central. Well, yeah, it would most assuredly not be as central as it has been within Catholic theology, as I understand it. I mean, just within the catechism and then it being the root of moral theology. And, and you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, and even mysticism and, and things like that. I don't think it's quite the same. Um, but I would say that uh, the part of my um, presentation here was influenced by some of the modern Jewish scholars, if I could just keep my comments to them. Um, and I don't know what to really to make of that, except that it, it's just like, well, we're the only ones that can walk on our 
two legs, so that's it. So then, I mean, and then, and then Aquinas tries to connect it to, well, because of that, then you can look up at the sky, which is, okay, that gets a little bit more, like connecting the physical and the spiritual. And that's, I guess, what my point is that um, within uh, Judaism, that, that there is this sense that the vocation of Israel as a collective is very much to be this representative of God uh, and that this is uh, meeting out and making visible God's justice in the world. That That's Israel's job. So in as so far as each individual is a part of that, then that, that's where the image of God would lay. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's and just, just to give some further clarification, um, Jewish people would admit it, but they pretty much almost have an identical um, view as us on original sin, practically. It's like, so they refuse to call original sin, but it's pretty much it, ultimately. <laughs> so it's, it's very funny to talk about sometimes. Hunter? Yes. <clears throat> um, earlier you were saying how um, uh, even after the, uh, the Noah's flood and everything, uh, the youth still have, like, they were still sinning and they yeah. were going to sin. Um, is that to say that, like, humanity's, uh, like, nature at that point uh, was, like, fallen or was to sin? Um, and then, like, later on after, like, post-Christ, um, did anything change that, or is that still our, like, nature? Okay, so the question is... Um, with regard to Genesis 8.21, does this uh, seem to reflect that uh, human nature is still fallen? And then is this also the case uh, after the coming of Christ? And um, yeah, so I would I would say that uh, in a word, yes. Okay, so um, why, one follow-up question to this, if, if I may, is that, well, why uh, would God do this then if he, you know, is God? Would he, did he not know that this wouldn't work? Um, and it's, it illustrates, uh, the fact that with a fallen human nature, it doesn't matter how many chances, uh, you give humanity there, it's always going to end in sin and that therefore we stand in need of the grace, the transformative grace of Christ. So what St. Paul, I'll leave that to my second talk, um, Human nature is still fallen. It is still damaged. Um, the The way that Paul talks about it is that the image uh, will be restored and transformed, and that only happens in Christ. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my question is that uh, you talked about uh, how we were created in the image of God, but Later in the Bible, in Jeremiah, we're called to assimilate into society, and in the New mm -hmm. Testament, we're called to submit to the government. Mm -hmm. So, in where where would the line fall between assimilation into society and submitting to the government, and not heeding immoral laws that go against God's justice? Okay, good question. Yeah. So, um, in the original vision of creation, this idea of manifesting God's justice, His merciful solicitude for the world, is. Uh, what I would say, um, if I may, is that there is this kind of uh, lost belief, okay, that we have to get back in touch with, which is that there is a kind of, when we talk about God's justice, it is uh, very much intimately connected with his mercy, as St. Thomas says, that it's merciful and that God created in the first place, okay? And that 
what is the the fault the effect of that mercy or how do we we perceive that that there's a certain rectitude of order in the world that is to say we can plant crops in the uh, springtime and harvest them in the fall this is it's an orderly world we know how cause and effect works we can live and move in it it's not created to be a waste okay so in an analogous fashion then human beings in society and in their behavior are meant to function in that same orderly way, uh, justly. We talk about it in terms of giving another their due. We talk about it in terms of ordering our relationships properly, acting well with other people, okay? The cardinal virtue of justice, okay? So then what does that mean in this context? Well, the unfortunate reality is that this is still a fallen world, um, and there are, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say ease, there have been and are evil governments in the world. So um, to be just and to make God's justice and his, their, by his mercy manifest is not to be complicit in that evil, but rather to know when to, to stand up to it and to subvert it. Um, so when Paul is talking, you know, he is talking about being a good citizen, uh, but he isn't talking about being complicit with evil in that way. Uh, yeah. Great. Um, this is a really excellent talk, um, and I, I'm looking forward to the second one. I, I do political theory, political philosophy, okay. so this question is going to be informed by the fact that I was covering law earlier this week. Um, okay. Uh, it seems that, so you mentioned that there's a democratization of the image, right, that we see in Genesis, such that and that, that you know, coincides with you know, democratization of, of virtue, right? That we are all capable of exercising certain virtues, and and um, and you see some of this, you know, even in the, I mean, even in like a modern like Locke, right? Who's not talking about a state of innocence or a state of grace? He's talking about a state of nature, which mm -hmm. is a distinct thing, right? And he's not talking about fundamentally about the law of God, though he uses that term. But, you know, say the law of God is basically the same as the law of nature, which is basically the same as the law of reason, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, so I, I guess uh, as someone who's interested in this idea of, um, of democratic equality and virtue and creation, um, does it, when we say we are created in the image and likeness of God or the image of God, does that mean that we are created equal? If so, in what sense? If not, in what sense? Can we both? So I think I think often in our in our common parlance, we tend to use "created in the image of God" as a um, as a kind of synecdoche is the wrong the wrong word I'm looking for, but as a kind of way of saying that we are all created equal. Okay. Um, so yeah. So so does the uh, the way that being created in the image of God in Genesis 1, does this uh, also imply that we are all created equal? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, yes, in, in this fundamental sense that every single human being has the capacity to make visible and make manifest God's uh, justice by obeying God and by, you know, by complying with these, um, the, the divine, you know, command. Um, by having solicitude for the created world, um, 
and, and particularly I would always come back to within the, the text of Genesis is kind of foreshadowing the creation of human society and the way that how we act within human society can either manifest or make opaque God's solicitous mercy and justice for the world. So everybody has the capacity to do that. The mode in which everybody has the capacity to do that will differ. So I don't think I could have ever uh, been a successful politician. Uh, I just don't, I'd, even if I wanted to, because I come from North Dakota and um, <laughs> just being honest. So, I mean, I, I don't have the, um, uh, I didn't have access to the IV education system, uh, the people that I know. So it's just how it is. So like, that's, that's true. So there isn't, uh, within these societies and when these ancient societies, I mean, it's like, no, I mean, there's, there's not egalitarianism. There are people who are going to end up growing food and there are people who are going to be able to be scribes, which is the, that's like the, you know, top, the top of the, 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 the hill there. So yeah, that's what I say. Um, another statement earlier was that Revelation is bigger than the Bible, correct me if I'm wrong right. that, but isn't the Bible in and of itself inspired general and specific revelation? Okay, so the question was, I said that the Bible, uh, the Revelation is bigger than the Bible, so isn't the Bible revelation in the general and specific sense? Is that right? Okay. Yes, uh, the the other dimension of this is that so when um, we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about a written text and a written set of books that have been recognized as being inspired. And so when God uh, revealed himself uh, in the course of history, he did so in history. OK, so revelation occurred on Mount Sinai to Moses irrespective of it being written down, it occurred there. Um, in the prophets, when they are called, uh, when they have this experience of repentance, etc., they have something about God revealed that they know in their intellect, irrespective of it being written down. Okay. Uh, that is also the case with Christ revealing himself and revealing his gospel message to his apostles. It happens through the preaching. It is live. It is organic. And it's it's not um, just the written word. And that, that was more my point is that um, so when we talk about the word of God, Dave Arabum actually talks about there being one sacred deposit of the word of God that includes tradition and scripture. OK, so the word of God, even uh, as it's used, is bigger than, than the scripture. And the word of God is in fact an analogous term. It refers to Jesus Christ in the first instance. And then it also refers to the sacred scripture and tradition as a deposit, but then it, it refers to the, the Bible, the, the canonical scriptures itself. So um, it is to say that this act of revealing is a, an economy, it's an ongoing thing, uh, and it's, it's not just um, the, the written word. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so my question is regarding scripture and tradition um, practical ways that Catholics can do that. So you mentioned um, that St. Jerome said that ignorance of scripture is ignorance of God and that tradition is the uh, context in which we receive the scripture. Um, so what are practical, I guess, ways for us Catholics to read 
the scripture um, without checking out what the leads like into um, Okay. So the question was uh, Saint Jerome said that that there's ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, and therefore how do we read it in such a way that we don't project our own ideas, but really get to know Christ, essentially, like practically. Yeah. Um, well, again, this being the intellectual retreat, uh, study, uh, that's one thing. So you have to form your intellect. Um, so Ratzinger, uh, Cardinal, sorry, um, then Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, uh, he talks about this in terms of uh, always reading ecclesially, which he then fleshes out in reading in light of the living tradition and reading also in light of the analogy of faith. Okay, that is to say, we believe that all of the truth of the tradition and the scripture cohere with one another, so read it together. Uh, or, you know, so when I, so when we study theology, when we, when we go on retreats like this, um, what do we believe about um, what it means for God to create? So when you have the amazing talk with the wooden egg, uh, that, 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 forms, that that forms your intellect. Like how you think about what it means to be created informs how you read God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. So... You can, you can do a linguistic analysis, and it's fascinating that bara in Hebrew is always has God as a subject and never has a material cause mentioned that God creates it out of something, this you know, word. That's true. But there are plenty of people who think about it, uh, biblical scholars, even Catholic biblical scholars, who say that creatio ex nihilo is not in the Bible. Not there. So it's a matter of separating. There's stuff that's there, and then God separates it. Well, um, you know, that that's kind of problematic or, or whatever, but it's like the, the way that dogma and uh, the, the teaching of the church has an influence on forming your intellect. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is by uh, prayer. Uh, and this is things like Lexio Divina that you would unplug, be silent, and just have a Bible open and just read it and then ask God to speak to you in that. The, the things that you study will be activated. Like you'll think of them, and God will work through all of that. Another thing that I like, uh, St. Augustine says this, that um, you can go, the Holy Spirit works such that you can go off-road, essentially, and the Holy Spirit will bring you back. So you can, if you're reading in good faith in this way, this is another important point, in good faith, that is, with the intention of trying to figure out what God intends to, to signify by this scripture, in good faith, reading with the scripture, then even if you happen to make a material mistake in your interpretation and what you think this meant, the Holy Spirit frequently will work through that in bringing you back. And that's, so, uh, so prayer and, and study, I mean, it's, Boring, I guess, when you put it that way. Not, not new, not new. It's kind of traditional, I guess. One more question. Yeah. So you mentioned the blood as uncreation. Yes. And Noah as recreation. Are there other instances of recreation from scripture and in the Old Testament? Recreation in scripture? So are there other instances of recreation in scripture when you see the Christ or the blood of Jesus? 
Yes. Okay. So is if Noah is the principle of recreation, are there other instances of recreation in the scripture and is Christ one of them? Because, yes, absolutely. Uh, Christ fulfills that pattern preeminently um, that this is, and this, again, I don't want to, you know, this is a spoiler alert, you know? So like uh, my second talk here is uh, it's a lot what Paul has to say about the recreative power of Christ. And the other thing is that, um, again, all the times when God acts to save Israel, to save his people in history, the, the, the pattern of creation is in the background. So in Isaiah, God is doing something new. Uh, it, it's having reference to the, um, in the Exodus, God is doing something new. He's, he's creating his people. Um, and in some sense, that is, uh, that's how the author means to describe the formation of the nation of Israel is, is a kind of creation. It's a saving these, uh, you know, ragtag bunch of uh, descendants of Abraham by creating them a, into a nation and putting them in, in a place. So that, that the pattern is there and some of the language gets brought back, but it really becomes fulfilled in Christ. Yep. Yeah, thank you, Father Jordan.